0: Hello. Welcome to the New Books in History podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my honor to be in dialogue with Dr. Peter Harmson. We will be discussing his recently published book, Shanghai, 1937, Stalingrad on the Yangtze, published in Philadelphia and Oxford by Casemate Publishers, 2013. Dr. Harmson has a PhD in China Studies, he is a journalist for the Danish publication Weekendavisen, focusing on East Asia. He's the author of eight books on historical themes. Peter, I am grateful beyond words for your availability to engage in this dialogue today.
2: Well, I'm I'm honored to be here.
0: To begin, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you would become as an adult?
2: Well, I, I guess I have something of a cosmopolitical background. Um, we uh, we traveled a lot when I was a child. My, my father was uh, a teacher. Um, we we lived uh, a couple of years in in Greenland when I was uh, between the ages nine and eleven. When my father was uh, teaching at a, a teacher training college in in the in the Greenland uh, capital of, of Nuuk. Um, uh, so so I, I think there was uh, this um, open-mindedness towards the outside world that was, that was instilled in, in these like early experiences of, of traveling a lot, um, which also meant that once I was done with uh, my bachelor at university in, in Denmark, I decided to go traveling and, and I knew exactly where I wanted to go. I wanted to go to, to East Asia. I've, I've always been extremely, um, uh, fascinated by, by the, by by the East and especially by China and also to some extent by, by Japan. Uh, the thing that really excited me about China and still excites me to this day is, is the, the sheer size of, of the country. I remember when I was a boy of like maybe seven or eight, um, I was like sitting, uh, in the, in the mornings, uh, before going to school, like eating my, my cereal breakfast. And, um, uh, at that time, the cereal boxes had like informative articles on on the backside. Um, for about a, a year or two, they they ran a series of articles about about China. And one thing that really stuck in my mind was um, one sentence. It said, um, "One in four people on this planet is a Chinese." I just thought that was so amazing that there was this huge country, like twenty five percent of humanity, on the other side of the world, and I knew practically nothing about it. I mean, I. I didn't know what what uh, what the weather was like in China. I, I knew very little about the history, about uh, what they like to eat, um, about the language. So all of these things, of course, I I started reading up on it, and uh, little by little, I, I gained a bigger understanding. But I really wanted to go to to the place myself, which is what I did after the end of of uh, my bachelor education at university. So I I went to China and, and traveled around China for a, that was the early 90s, I, I traveled around China for a few months and eventually I ended up in, in Taiwan um, teaching and also learning Chinese at the same time. That, that was the way you, you did it back then when, when China was still not quite open yet. Lots of Westerners who had this desire to learn Chinese would go to Taiwan and make money as teachers at the same time as, as they, they spent their, their free time studying Chinese. So, so that that was how my interest in, in in China developed.
0: What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers?
2: Well, the, the thing is, um, I've always, uh, since I was a boy, I've been interested in, in World War II. It's it's partly because of, of my family background, um, I, like several people who were of like a certain generation had like uh, various uh, experiences during the war and, and and told us about them when I was a boy. And uh, this whole idea fascinated me immensely. So I've I've had this like long lasting interest in in World War II. So um, once I I ended up in in China and and eventually in Taiwan, I started also reading up on on modern Chinese history. And of course, uh, when you say modern Chinese history, most people talk about the period after 1949 and and the communist takeover. But I realized that there was this incredibly fascinating period just before 1949 that was not very well described in, in any Western language the um, the uh, era of uh, civil war and uh, uh, and war with Japan uh, that was formative for millions of, of Chinese and and really um, molded Chinese society as we know it today um, and 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 given I had this like uh, I had brought this interest with me uh, in World War II it was it was pretty straightforward to develop an interest in in China in World War II uh, and, and one thing that, that struck me was uh, when I started, you know, looking at, at the available literature on the subject that very, very little was actually available in, in any Western language about uh, China in, in World War II, um, which is really, um, which is really uh, so, so, uh, somewhat odd when you, when you look at how uh, exhaustively World War II has been described in any other theater, theater on the planet. I mean, if you if you look at World War II in Western Europe there are hundreds of books about for example D-Day or the Battle of the Bulge or uh, the Battle of Britain uh, it's it's been so exhaustively exhaustively researched and and written about in um, in, in the West that now you like his, historians like looking into the corners of corners of um, uh, of, of the subject area to find new things uh, things that haven't been, uh, been been talked about or written about in the past, um, whereas in, in China it was completely uh, virgin territory as far as uh, Western historians uh, were concerned. Of course, there had been some writing about about China and World War Two, but when you compare with how you had like literally like miles of shelves with um, uh, um, with, with, with books about World War Two and in Europe and in the Pacific, compared to what little was there in about World War II in China. It, it struck me that that something needed to be written. So so that's at a relatively early early date, as early as the 1990s, I was thinking about like, I, I wanted to write a book about World War II in, in China. Um, then of course, life intervened. Um, I got married and I got a job. So I didn't really have the time to, um, to, to write this book, uh, especially, um, after I, I moved back to Beijing as, as a correspondent for the French new news agency AFP, and um, I simply didn't have time to, to 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 write this book. So it was like put on the backbone her, for about a decade or so. And then around like 2012, 2013, I I, I returned to, to this subject of writing a book, or this interest of, of writing a book about World War II in China. And I tried I tried to Think about. I try to. uh, I try to find out like what kind of book do I actually want to write. Um, Initially, I just want to write, you know, the whole, the whole story from 1937 until 1945. You know, the entire eight-year history, uh, every every battle, every um, political development. But very soon, I realized that, you know. if, if, if this if this was to be um, a book of a normal size, it would just be too superficial because so much happened over such a long period of time. So I had to like limit myself. And that's why. So I started like looking at like, how about I started, about, how about I write about the first, maybe the first year, 1937 to 1938, you know, the, um, the period of rapid Japanese advance and uh, the Chinese societal collapse and but even that was was too massive, and that's why when I decided like to zoom in on just one battle, which uh, turned out to be like the Battle of Shanghai in in the in the fall of 1937. But for for several reasons, um, um, one of them was that it, it has a pretty clear beginning and a pretty clear end, so it's it's pretty well defined. The period you want to write about is like August to November 1937. And also um, in terms of sourcing, uh, there were really a an, an enormous variety um, of, of sources available in, uh, available in in all languages chinese japanese and also the western languages uh, western journalists were uh, were there when, when the battle happened in 1937 and and uh, wrote about it uh, eloquently for for the newspapers and later also put out memoirs so you had all kinds of like different angles uh, that you could uh, that you could cover uh, in a book like that.
0: What are the primary themes in your book? What story and stories does your book tell?
2: Well, the primary theme or, or the thing I really wanted to convey was just the, um, the enormity or the, the, the huge scale of, of, of what was taking place. Uh, I really wanted to, to get that across to the readers, uh, because so, so little is known in the West about world war II in China. Um. One of the things that readers have told me after the book, book came out was uh, they were surprised that this battle had even happened. You know, they they maybe visited in Shang, to Shanghai or they had lived in Shanghai for for extended periods of time, and they had no idea that this had taken place in 1937. This this massive battle with tens of thousands of casualties and like whole districts um, uh, being annihilated in 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 the, um, uh, the in the battles taking place. So this was what I wanted to convey first and foremost. And that was also why I decided to call it uh, uh, Shanghai on the Yangtze. Uh, When when I, I, no, no, Stalingrad on the Yangtze. When when I use this this analogy, uh, Stalingrad, it wasn't really uh, to to suggest any one-to-one similarity in terms of like operational or tactical detail. It was more uh, just this this whole idea about uh, a huge uh, modern city with a, a large number of civilians suddenly being engulfed in, in war, um, which I, I think makes uh, makes the Shanghai battle uh, similar to, to, to Stalingrad, which is, of course, much better known in the West.
0: Where, when, why and how did the Battle of Shanghai occur? Can you explain the ways that it unfolded? Can you describe what transpired?
2: Yeah, if you want to go back a little bit, uh, a little bit, step a little bit back, and and look at at the uh, like the broader scope of history, and the in the 1930s in, in in China, what is what had really taken place since the early 1930s was that you know J- Japan, uh, being a modernizing, westernizing society, wanted to have everything that the West had, you know, a modern parliament, a modern army modern legislation modern schools and a a modern empire the problem was uh, most territories had already been taken Um, all of africa was taken for example so there wasn't really anywhere for japan to go if it wanted to uh, if it wanted to uh, create an empire of its own except um, the uh, the um, the uh, asian continent just across the sea uh, china which became the uh, main uh, main objective for, for uh, Japan's uh, imperialist uh, ambition in, in the um, culminating in, in, the, in the 1930s. So, what you uh, what you saw in the beginning of, of the 1930s was uh, Japan's occupation of uh, of what was called Manchuria back then, which is today the three northeastern provinces of, of China, an area that's uh, comparable in uh, in size to uh, a major major part of of Western Europe with millions of people that that was taken over pretty much by Japan in 1931, 1932, Um, uh, uh, pretty much uh, um, uh, a a land grab uh, with very little uh, real justification other than uh, uh, Japan's uh, territorial ambition. Um, what we saw after 1932 until 1937 was like five years of uh, low intensity uh, conflicts between uh, China and and Japan with Japan' uh, trying to implement what I would call maybe creeping colonization trying to like grab small pieces of Chinese territory like moving further and further south from 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 the northeast from Manchuria where it already had established a base um China of course at that time was was weak um uh, weakened by internal uh, unrest uh, civil war uh, the uh, rivalry between the nationalists and the communists and uh, there was really very little that the Chinese could do to oppose the Japanese and at the same time uh, uh, the, uh, like huge uh, discontent uh, developed among Chinese uh, uh, among Chinese people especially the, the well-educated people uh, Residents of of the major cities um, who, um, who wanted the, who wanted the China to do something about it. Uh, so there was this there was this internal uh, pressure building up against the Chinese leadership to uh, to make a stand against the Japanese. Uh, that stand happened in uh, the summer of nineteen thirty seven, with um, a, 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 an armed clash between uh, Chinese and Japanese forces in the uh, vicinity of of Beijing. Um, which uh, could have uh, could have uh, ended up as just a, a minor incident but because China decided this was where they wanted to make a stand uh it it, it, it uh, erupted into something much bigger the beginning of, of actual all-out war between uh, China and Japan uh, a- a- again China was in a weakened state and um, the uh, the Chinese forces in 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 the north in the vicinity of Beijing were simply swept away by the efficient and uh, well-equipped uh, Japanese forces. So very soon, in the summer of 1937, all of uh, northern China in the area around Beijing was was occupied by by the Japanese. This was when the the Chinese leadership under the uh, uh, under under the so-called Generalissimo uh, Shanghai Shek. Decided to um, to move the uh, move the battle further south, about uh, about um, a little less than a thousand miles south to to from Beijing to to Shanghai. Uh, this was where uh, Japan was relatively weak. It had a small garrison in, in Shanghai. Like Shanghai was an international city at the time, with a uh, small garrisons of uh, of uh, various uh, Western forces and also. A small uh, Japanese uh, force of uh, like Japanese marines, only a few thousand. Uh, Chiang Kai Shek decided this was where he was going to make his uh, big symbolic stand. Uh, he was going to take all his uh, best um, educated and best trained and best uh, equipped troops and move them to Shanghai and um, wipe out the uh, Japanese garrison in uh, uh, in in in, uh, in, in, a, in a dramatic. Uh, in, in a dramatic battle that uh, he believed would be over in, in just a, a very short period of time. Um, now we're talking about August 1937 and, and the beginning of, of, of the Battle of Shanghai. The, the problem was, uh, from, a Chi- from the Chinese perspective, that the Japanese garrison fought back much more efficiently than the, the Chinese had uh, expected, and also got uh, support from uh, uh, from the Japanese Navy, which was anchored off Shanghai. Uh, and uh, as well as uh, Japanese uh, parts of the Japanese Air Force that was uh, present in the area, with the result that um, what Chiang Kai Shek wanted to be uh, just you know a, a, a brief violent battle that would have um, uh, that would have uh, uh, that would have developed into uh, or resulted in in a major victory for him and uh, like a pro- also a propaganda victory that could have like um, S- rallied the chinese nation behind this leadership this turned out to be a much more protac- protracted affair uh, which dragged on first it dragged on for days then for weeks then for months at the same time as both the japanese and the chinese pulled in more and more troops and uh, into this like cauldron like battle um and also like a battle of attrition maybe to some extent similar to what we see in ukraine today where Neither parties um, seem to be uh, uh, significantly stronger than the other, uh, and uh, you had this like kind of like stalemate like um, uh, state of affairs that that uh, that that uh, lasted for several weeks uh, and eventually for, for three months until uh, the Japanese, with a few like fairly uh, um, innovative maneuvers. Uh, managed to, uh, to, to score uh, uh, an operational victory in, in the Shanghai area and uh, take over the city and, and push out the, the Chinese.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to Shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
0: Can you describe the treatment of Japanese prisoners by Chinese forces and the treatment of Chinese prisoners by Japanese forces?
2: Yeah, it's uh, it, it's one of the to, to begin maybe with the with the Japanese treatment of, of the Chinese, it's it's one of the the big surprises, you could say, of, of early twentieth century uh, history, how uh, the, the the Japanese treatment of uh, prisoners of war uh, uh, evolved uh, and developed in the um, in the wrong direction, you could say, um, uh, over the over the decades. If, if you go back to the um, Russo-Japanese War in, in the in the early twentieth century, the the, the Japanese uh, military was uh, Um, was praised throughout the world for its uh, humane treatment of uh, Russian prisoners. The same in uh, World War I when there was a a brief battle between the Japanese and and, and German colonial troops in in, in China. Uh, The Japanese were again praised for being incredibly humane towards the prisoners, more humane, in fact, than than, uh, European nations were towards their prisoners. This uh, changed completely um, in the period between uh, World War I and the Battle of of Shanghai in 1937. Uh, And I think there are several different uh, factors at play here. Um, One of them, I think, is is just some kind of uh, racism on on, on the part of the Japanese towards the Chinese. Um, The the Japanese consider themselves to be like honorable uh, Caucasians um, Honorary ca- ca- Caucasians, and and they were looking uh, at the Japanese, uh, at the Chinese, with with ca- Caucasian glasses, you could say, and um, and 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 were treated almost as as an inferior race uh, that really didn't deserve uh, to any kind of like humane treatment. Uh, that was, a, I mean, this is maybe like you would call the 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 philosophical background, you know, the, this racial ideological background. Uh, that that, uh, that 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 prompted the Japanese to treat the the Chinese prisoners badly. I think another reason was simply a matter of, of logistics. Uh, n- neither the Japanese army nor the Chinese army uh, in the battlefield in in China in in the late 1930s was really equipped to take over large uh, numbers of prisoners. Uh, there was like there was none of this um, this whole logistical apparatus that modern armies have have today. Um, where they know exactly what to do if if they suddenly um, have a large number of 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 uh, of, uh, of uh, foreign POWs. Uh, I mean, there's military police. You know, there's all kinds of um, uh, all kinds of uh, logistical, logistical arrangements. So you know exactly what to do with um, with with foreign prisoners and like how to treat them, how to make sure they they get uh, accurate, uh, sufficient uh, medical treatment and sufficient uh, food. None of this was uh, in existence in, in China in the 1930s. Uh, there was simply nowhere to, to put prisoners. Um, so it was very often up to the um, the field units themselves to dispose of the prisoners. And when I say dispose, it's to, to be taken very literally to get rid of them, which means, like, kill them on the spot. Sometimes uh, maybe try and, and, and uh, squeeze information out of them first and then, then kill them. Uh, but that was, like, almost like the... Um, the uh, modus operandi, uh, the standard operating operating procedure for for both for both sides in in, in Shanghai, in 1937, to simply uh, kill the prisoners because there was like nowhere to to put them otherwise.
0: What was Black Saturday? What happened? What were the ramifications?
2: That was uh, right at the start of the uh, battle uh, in uh, August 1937. Uh, the battle was just a few days old at the time. Uh, the the the, uh, the Japanese uh, military had already at that time showed that it was uh, uh, superior in 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 many respects when it came to uh, modern uh, modern material, uh, not just the, um, the 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 navy that was uh, anchored um, uh, off of the uh, the Shanghai harbor front, but also to some extent the uh, Japanese uh, military airplanes that were. Beginning to um, emerge in the skies over Shanghai, uh, so th- this was Black uh, Black um, uh, Black Sunday began with the um, w- w- with a with a plan uh, developed by the uh, Chinese uh, military leadership um, with the help of a foreign advisor, uh, an, an American aviator known as uh, Claire Lee Chennault, who later on became very famous uh, by the American public as as a World War II uh, hero. Um, he he led he uh, he um, in cooperation with the Chinese. He uh, he, he developed this uh, pretty meticulous plan of uh, taking everything that, that China had in terms of uh, military aviation and um, and uh, deployed against uh, the, uh, the 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 Japanese Navy uh, in the uh, in the port of Shanghai. Uh, especially uh, against uh, an aging Japanese warship called uh, the Itsumo, which was used as kind of like floating artillery in support of the uh, of the Japanese forces uh, in the streets of Shanghai. The problem was that uh, this didn't pan out at all the way that the the that the Chinese had had hoped for. Um, the Itsumo was not, uh, as far as we can see from the sources, hit at all by any of of the of the Chinese uh, airplanes. Instead, um, some of the bombs dropped by the Japanese airplanes uh, veered off course and and, uh, landed in the uh, civilian part of of Shanghai. Uh, Some of the bombs uh, exploded near uh, two well-known Chinese hotels, also frequented by foreigners, and killed uh, large numbers of of, uh, civilians. Uh, So you could almost call it the the, the Chinese uh, Guernica, um, with reference to uh, Guernica in the uh, Spanish Civil War, which was also um, a showcase of, of what modern uh, military aviation could do to a civilian, uh, defenseless civilian population on the ground. It was kind of like a, a wake-up call and uh, like a, sh- a shock to uh, not just the Chinese public, but also to the public overseas about like the horrors of modern uh, uh, modern, uh uh, modern air war. What what could be done by um, by, by bombers uh, dropping their bombs on on defenseless civilian areas? Even though, of course, here it was it wasn't in any way uh, deliberate. It was uh, it was uh, the bombs were dropped in error.
0: What does your research teach us about the psychology and sociology of revenge?
2: Well, yeah, the um, the, the theme of the revenge theme is something that uh, popped up. Um, repeatedly in my research about uh, for, for for this book, um, one of the um, early things, uh, one of the early incidents in the war uh, in 1937 was something that happened in uh, in the north of China before the uh, start of the Battle of Shanghai, um, in in a in a city called uh, Tongzhou near near Beijing, where uh, which was like a kind of like a Japanese military city. Uh, It it was a Chinese city, but but with a fairly sizable uh, Japanese garrison, which uh, when the war started in the north of China, uh, left the city to to go fight the Chinese uh, outside the the, the city gates and and kind of left the civilian population, including uh, civilian Japanese and also civilian Koreans, uh, undefended against against Chinese soldiers. Uh, but what happened after the uh, Japanese garrison left uh, was that uh, an auxiliary police force uh, uh, staffed by by Chinese decided to uh, turn against uh, against the Japanese and uh, p- carried out a, a fairly uh, gruesome massacre against uh, Japanese civilians in in that town. Uh, a few days later, when when the Japanese returned to the city, the Japanese military returned to the city. They were the soldiers were. Were horrified to see the way that the, uh, that the civilians had been treated um, of course this was um th- this was just just what the japanese war propaganda needed in its war against uh, in its campaign against the chinese so of course this was like really this was like um widely reported in 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 the in the japanese media and also to some extent like blown out of proportion and uh it was something that uh, really in uh, inspired the, the, the Japanese uh, soldiers to um, even more gruesome acts of revenge against the Chinese as they uh, spread out into the uh, Chinese countryside and later on uh, moved further south towards the Shanghai area. Like th- this whole idea of, as I said, the, the city was called Tongzhou. So this whole, this idea of like revenge Tongzhou was, uh, it was almost like a slogan that like ran through the Japanese army and, and was, was used sometimes as justification for, for really horrific crimes against uh, Chinese civilians.
0: How did German-Japanese relations ebb and flow before and during the Second Sino-Japanese War?
2: Well, the uh, outbreak of the war in 1937 came at a pretty crucial point in, um, in you could say, like German-East Asian relations because Hitler at that time was four and a half years into his uh, 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 in his uh, regime in, in in Germany, and uh, whereas uh, he was uh, focused on on Europe, he also had a certain interest in in East Asia, mostly because it it could act as a counter counterbalance uh, uh, in 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 the um, maneuvering, the political and strategic maneuvering against the Soviet Union, which was. Uh, uh, in uh which was uh, considered like germans uh, probably main uh, european enemy so so what hitler and, and the uh, nazi leadership needed was uh was an ally in the in the east uh that could uh that could uh, apply pressure to the soviets uh, from the rear and force uh, the soviet army to have uh, a large number of its divisions uh, lined up in the east uh as, as kind of like a preemptive, um, preemptive uh, measure against possible attack. So the only real issue for for, for the Germans at the time was, should this uh, Asian ally, should it be the Chinese, or should it be the Japanese? But for a very long time, until the mid to late 1930s, uh, it seemed that the, the Germans were banking on the, uh, on the Chinese as their main... Uh, Main Asian ally. Of course, they couldn't pick both. They couldn't pick both the Chinese and the Japanese, since the Chinese and the Japanese were mortal enemies. So they had to like make a choice. And also pretty much until the beginning of, of the war in nineteen thirty seven, the, the the Germans decided um, we will we'll stick with the with the Chinese. Th- this was partly because of traditions going back to the nineteen twenties, like pre Hitler, the uh, German um, the, the German army. Uh, be- before the Nazi era, was also invested to some extent in 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 China and had sent advisors to 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 the Chinese army to help them uh, uh, build their organization and their war preparations uh, along German lines. So it was there was some kind of like bureaucratic inertia to some extent in 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 Germany's uh, decision to stick with the Chinese. But as as the the war evolved, uh, also an interesting thing is that. Um, uh, German advisors played a, a pretty big role in, in Shanghai and in the defense of Shanghai as uh, um, as advisors to to the uh, to, to the Chinese uh, officers uh, leading leading the battle. It, it seems that pretty much uh, every every command post in the field, as well as uh, the headquarters uh, behind behind the front line, were, were staffed with uh, with German uh, advisors who uh, sometimes got really really got their hands dirty and 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 really. Involved themselves in, in decision making, so so as later as like the fall of 1937, um, the, the Germans were involved in the war pretty much on the Chinese side. But then, as 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 the Germans saw how the how the war evolved, with um, with the Chinese losing all the time and the Japanese winning all the time, it was pretty obvious to the Germans that they had probably bet on the wrong horse. So this was kind of like the beginning of of um of this major shift in in german diplomacy in in in, in east asia where uh, little by little they, they changed um, uh, the they changed the diplomatic allegiances away, away from the chinese towards the japanese with the result that you know that we saw a few years later with the uh establishment of the of the axis uh, including not just the japanese and the chinese and the germans but also the italians and you know this whole alliance system that was to become definitive for in terms of, of how the uh, how World War II panned out, who
0: was Wolf Schenker? Why is he significant?
2: Well, he's uh, he's interesting to me. He's he's a journalist. He, he was a German journalist uh, who was uh, active uh, like as, as a as a war correspondent in in China in 1937 and uh, published a book afterwards, uh, which is called um, Journey Along the the Yellow Front, which uh, describes this. Um, this, this whole, um, this whole, uh, Chinese campaign in, in, I would say very interesting and also very objective detail. Uh, that's like, it was, um, it's, it was, uh, a, a kind of, um, uh, German war reporting, uh, without, without the propaganda that was later to like totally destroy the quality of, of most German war reporting. It was, he was there as as as, um, as a as a foreign observer, not really taking sides, but but simply uh, reporting what what he saw, uh, reporting back to to German readers, and he could do it like pretty much without mixing ideology into it, because it was you know it's it was it was a a distant battlefield which was not really uh, tied up with any of the politics uh, that that was uh, of concern in, in in Europe. So so what I think is really interesting about him is. Uh, he, he is he's a rep, he's representative of of some of the sources that sometimes don't really get used so much by, by historians. Um, we we tend to almost reflexively we, we tend to like go to um, American and, and, and British war correspondents to 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 get uh, to, to get some of the flavor of the battle of of, of the of the time. But I think we can also like widen the net sometimes and and, and look at some of the other war correspondents uh, active uh, in the field to, to get a, a more rounded idea about what what was going on at the time.
0: How does your study contribute to philosophical questions surrounding guilt in the Second Sino-Japanese War?
2: Uh, I think uh, it's, it's both easy and, and difficult to answer a question like that. Because, of course, I mean, we all know that the real world is, is really murky. It's uh, it's not like, you know, War of the Rings with uh, really good guys on one side and really bad guys on the other side. It's always like much more... Uh, there's the, Usually there are many more shades of gray than just black and white. With, with one exception, maybe. Like World War II was really good guys against bad guys in a way. I mean, it's it, rarely have you been up against... Uh, enemies as, as nasty as, as the Nazis in Europe or as the uh, Japanese in, in Asia. But but then again, I mean, once you get into the detail, it, it becomes, it's, it, 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 it does become a little bit murky. For example, um, I just mentioned this idea about, or the, this, this incident of the uh, Chinese uh, auxiliary police that massacred the Japanese civilians in, in Northern China in 1937. This was actually probably the first um, um, uh, the first major slaughter of civilians of the entire war, um, if, if you count the war as beginning in 1937, whereas um, when when you look at the, at the wars as a, as a whole, of course, it's the the, the dominant theme is not uh, Chinese slaughtering Japanese civilians. It's the other way around. It's Japanese slaughtering Chinese civilians in in a on a massive scale, you know, on a scale that that. Is reminiscent of uh, of the way that uh, Germans uh, behaved against um, Jews and Slavs in, in Europe, uh, but but this this whole idea about guilt, it, it does become a little bit complex when when you look at like who, who actually performed the first mass slaughter. It, it wasn't the Chinese. It, it, it wasn't the Japanese. It it, it 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 was the Chinese. So it's 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 kind of complex. Um I think that's one of the fascinating things about history that it's. It's never simple. Like once you start scratching on the surface and look at what's under it, it it becomes, it always becomes very complex.
0: Can you describe the evolution and fluctuation of the Sino German relationship during the Second Sino Japanese War? How did Chinese German relations fluctuate and evolve over time?
2: It's kind of uh, yeah. Then I'll, I'll revert a little bit to what I said uh, earlier about um, about how the the the, the German uh, allegiances uh, changed uh, uh, with, with a greater emphasis towards the Japanese uh, in the early years of of, of the Sino-Japanese War. Of course, um, when when the Chi- when the G- when the Germans decided to to abandon the Chinese uh, uh, and and uh, place their bets with the with the Japanese, it meant uh, uh, it, it, it meant uh, a, a severe deterioration of um, of the uh, of the uh, Chinese German relationship. But still, it, it, it took a long long time before there was like a real actual break uh, in relations between uh, the Chinese and the Germans. Um, I, I can I can mention this, maybe as maybe as covering an interesting anecdote um, that even in I think in 1940. At a time when um, when the um, when the two major camps of World War II were, were really starting to like shape up, and you pretty much knew who was going to be on, on 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 which side, uh, still in in the Chinese uh, war wartime capital of, of Chongqing in, in Southwest China, there was a ban imposed against um, the uh, Charlie Chaplin movie, uh, The Dictator, the one that's kind of like making fun of Hitler. You know, the the one with the famous scene with uh, Charlie Chaplin uh, playing with a, with a big globe. Um, this was, this was, a, a ban- this was, this movie was banned, um, and, and was not allowed to be shown to, to, to the Chinese audiences, uh, on the direct order of, of the Chinese, uh, leadership, uh, they didn't want to hurt German feelings, even as late as, as, as 1940. So it wasn't like a clean break. It was little by little. And and some of these, um, German officers who, uh, who, uh, who acted on, on, on the Chinese side in, in the Battle of Shanghai and also later, they were considered friends of the Chinese nation uh, even later uh, in the 1940s and if, even after 1945, when after Germany, Germany's final defeat in World War II. Uh, some of these uh, now elderly uh, former German officers were, were still considered friends by the Chinese, and, and sometimes were even given like money gifts um, if they were, you know, if they had like material. Issues back home in in post war, uh, in post war Germany, they were given um, they were they were given uh, financial aid by by, by the Chinese uh, as as a as a reflection of, of of this gratitude that they still felt towards the Germans.
0: How does your research recontextualize the life and legacy of Chiang Kai Shek?
2: Well, uh, Chiang Kai Shek, uh, the historiography of, of Chiang Kai Shek is is really interesting. Uh, it's it's kind of like being um, Fluctuating a lot, uh, of course. in In the 1940s, during the war, he was considered the uh, the, uh, the Chinese Roosevelt or the Chinese Churchill, you know, a wartime hero that could do no wrong, uh, according to like Allied propaganda. Then, um, of course, he, he lost China to to the communists in 1949, and kind of that 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 took away some of the um, some of his brilliance, and uh, he kind of like was suddenly gradually in the 1950s and 1960s uh, typecast as more of like a, an inept um third world dictator type um he was uh, he was um, he was a villain but he was like our villain so we had to like you know deal with him but he wasn't he wasn't admired very much especially not by by western academics um one of the uh, the books that uh, very much uh, ref- reflects uh, this this view of Chiang Kai-shek in the post war years as as inefficient and uh, and corrupt is uh, by Barbara Tuckman, the uh, famous uh, the famous historian, who wrote um, a lengthy book about Chiang Kai Shek and uh, the uh, relate uh, the cooperation between uh, China and the United States in, in the war against Japan, where where Chiang Kai Shek and and his regime was pretty much uh, painted in very negative uh, negative colors. So th- this was the um, this was the view of Shanghai-shek of, of for a very long time, uh, probably most of the post-war period until I would say the turn of the century. Uh, once we enter into the 21st century, I think there's been like um there's been a movement to kind of rehabilitate Chiang Kai-shek um both in China um and uh, in the West. In China it's kind of interesting, it's tied up with you know great power politics. Uh, it's it's reflective of how mainland China and, and Taiwan, where Chiang Kai-shek eventually ended up after 1949, um, entered into a, a period of, of a detente in the, the 1990s and the early 21st century, where one of the uh, things they had in common was, you know, uh, seeing Chiang Kai-shek as, as a kind of uh, a heroic figure in the struggle against Japan. So that that... that that was kind of like the uh, contemporary political context uh that, that that caused him to to be re-evaluated uh, and to some extent rehabilitated uh in China at the same time we we see um we see parallel uh, uh movements uh, with, with in in the assessment of Chiang kai-shek among Western historians uh, there have been several biographies of Chiang kai-shek uh, actually one was published only recently by a Russian American historian, which also rehabilitate Chiang Kai-shek, no longer see him as, you know, this inept dictator that couldn't defeat the Japanese and afterwards couldn't defeat the communists either, Um, but rather as maybe like a tragic figure who was up against like enormous like historical forces that he couldn't possibly have, have, um, have managed well. So it's it's kind of like been back and forth in terms of like reevaluating, evaluating and reevaluating Chiang Kai-shek. Now I don't know if maybe we are um we are entering into a, a new chapter in this historiography of Chiang Kai-shek. I, I don't know, it's, it's it's early days, but I mean we see, what we see right now between China and, and Taiwan with like growing tension um and uh, uh, almost like uh, Cold War style um, a Cold War-style atmosphere between China and Taiwan. Maybe this former consensus of uh, about Chiang Kai-shek as as an as a as a, an okay historical figure will will now uh, be trans transformed into something more negative, especially from from the Chinese side. But it's it's still too early to say.
0: Can you describe the role of journalism? in the Second Sino-Japanese War?
2: Well, the thing about the the Second uh, Sino-Japanese War, and especially the Battle of Shanghai, was that this was, uh, maybe it's the wrong uh, way to phrase it, but it was almost like the perfect war as far as as the journalists were concerned, and especially the Western journalists. I mean, the the Battle of Shanghai evolved around uh, uh, a city center that was uh, under Western administration, international administration, which meant that the belligerents uh, could not actually enter into there. So there they they was, kind of, was kind of like the base where um, um, where, where the um, where the journalists could kind of like set up camp. Uh, and then from there, they could like move both to the Chinese side and interview like Chinese commanders and Chinese soldiers in the trenches. Then they could get into a car and like drive a few miles and then they would end up at the uh, in the Japanese trenches and do the same thing, talk to Japanese uh Japanese officers and 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 Japanese soldiers so so they they were able to uh, to exhaustively exhaustively uh cover both sides of this battle um, so uh, and I I find it very hard to think of of another another war where you know journalists could do the exact same thing uh, talk to both sides at the same time and and give this like rounded, um, understanding of of, of uh, what was going on in the front line.
0: In your opinion, what does the future hold for remembrance of the second Sino-Japanese war as living survivors die out? How will this impact memory and scholarship in the next generation?
2: Well, I think the same thing will happen in China as uh, is happening in the West, that as, as, as people who uh, actually experienced the war die out, we will uh, it, it will be mo- mostly a loss because we we will we will lose this like last living link to 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 the actual events, and uh, you know the um, the whole field will be much more open to groundless speculation or assumptions, uh, sometimes ahistorical assumptions about what is going on. Uh, you couldn't do that uh, twenty or thirty years ago. You couldn't like publish a book. Making uh, outrageous uh, claims about World War II because you know there will be veterans out there who, um, who would immediately point out that this was not the way it was. You know, we we lived through it. You know, you, uh, it's 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 a it's completely it's a, it's a complete lie what you're putting out in your book. I mean th- this, um, this, this this uh, quality control w- will be missing in the future, um, and I think maybe in China it would be even worse. Because, um, of course, given the, uh, the the nature of the political system in, in China, there's uh, very much like there's one single uh, view of, of history that's imposed uh, on 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 the public, and to some extent also on professional historians, or at least a very um, um, limited uh, area that's that's considered uh, uh, considered uh, Relevant uh, territory for 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 historians. Uh, so, in 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 China, it would be uh, I I I I fear that you know this we will be see an even bigger distancing away from historical reality uh, once the uh, the war generation dies out. On the other hand, you could say that the war generation never really played a, a huge role in 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 how history was was managed in in China. It's always been. Something for officials and, and state-employed historians, uh, whereas like, the people who actually lived through it had very little say in, in how, um, how the war was to be remembered.
0: Can you comment on the activities and legacy of Alexander von Falkenhausen?
2: Yes, he, he was one of these um, former German officers who were considered uh, friends of, of, the, um, of the Chinese nation and uh, it's it's interesting to kind of contrast the kind of legacy that he has in china compared with the legacy that he um, he has in in, in europe he uh, first of all he's not very well known in in europe any longer but he he did play a role in in occupied belgium as um as part of the uh, german military administration uh, after the uh, after the uh, western campaign in, in in the in 1940 and uh, mostly uh, seen in a negative light of course uh of course no no one liked the German occupiers anywhere in western Europe so uh, simply given like his function in in the German army as german army as, as as a as a leading member of the occupying force means that he has left a pretty negative um legacy uh in in Belgium and and in Western Europe as a whole in China it's completely different he is um uh, when he's described in in, in Chinese historical works uh, and his uh, his role is um, as 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 a as a ranking uh, as a as a ranking advisor to Chiang Kai Shek comes into focus, it's it's mostly in, in a in a kind of heroic light. Um, very little negative is, is said about him, uh, and uh, e- even in in the early post-war years, uh, right after 1945, when it wasn't you know it wasn't really. Politically correct to uh, have anything to do with former German uh, military people. Chiang Kai-shek was in, in, in touch with uh, Falkenhausen and uh, even you know, helped him out economically.
0: Can you describe the different kinds of atrocities and cruelties that were perpetrated during the Second Sino-Japanese War?
2: Well, the, the, the big, you know, atrocity with a with a capital A is, of course, the the rape of Nanjing, which happened just a. A few weeks after the end of the the Battle of Shanghai in, in 1937, um, this is partly a reflection of of uh, China, official Chinese histori- historiography. There's been a decision to to really zoom in on on, on this particular atrocity, uh, which of, was of course per se in many ways because of the many people who died, and also because it the way they died and the, the fact that it took place in in the in the capital of of, of China at the time nanjing you know it's like it's the cruelty uh, combined with uh, humiliation of, of the chinese people that 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 made it such a such a traumatic um incident in 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 chinese history but the fact is that there were many rapes of nanjing taking place in china both before and after i mean it was it was um it was almost almost like a routine uh, when, when the Japanese army had taken over a, a major city you know, to go looting, go killing, go raping. Um, it, it, was, uh, it was taking place on such a massive scale that you know, it's hard to find parallels anywhere in history, except, of course, the, the German behavior in, in Europe and especially Eastern Europe um, in, in the early 1940s.
0: In what ways can... Holocaust studies and second Sino-Japanese war studies interact with one another, learn from one another and mutually benefit one another. How can the two fields grow from intellectual exchange between scholars and scholarship?
2: Uh, it's, it's kind of a tough question because uh, Holocaust is really unique in history. It's, it's hard to think of anything just as, as exactly that gruesome taking place before or after uh, and also something as shocking taking place in, in what was considered uh, a civilized uh, European nation so it, to some extent uh, the Holocaust is unique and and and, and is there's a reason why it's being treated as such by by historians but then on the other hand uh, they're also, features of, of the holocaust that you see in in other similar mass murders elsewhere in in history including in, in china um in the 1930s and, and 1940s um especially this idea about uh, perpetrators and and bystanders and and victims uh, this like classical distinction of of people you, you see that also sometimes in in china um especially uh, when we move into the 1940s, and 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 we see uh, China being occupied, uh, and uh, the Japanese uh, army of occupation being helped by uh, Chinese collaborators, where, where you where you see some of the same dynamics, um, where where the Chinese population is is divided into um, victims, perpetrators, and and bystanders, people who just like witness what was happening without inter- interfering. Also, you see. Uh, um, it's, it, maybe you could call it like a, a silver lining. Sometimes you see like in, heroic individuals who stand out and actually help their their fellow human beings in in a time of of extreme danger and and cruelty. Uh, the the classical figure, of course, in in Europe, Europe is uh, Oskar Schindler, the uh, the German businessman or the ethnic German businessman who uh, who uh, somehow had this conversion and and towards the end of the war. Uh, Staked everything on on saving as many Jews as possible, um, you see that too in 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 China. Uh, ex, for example, during the Rape of Nanjing, you see uh, individual Westerners stand out, helping helping Chinese, even though it's um, it means uh, extreme uh, physical danger to them themselves. Um I think it's this this whole uh, subject of like in heroic individuals acting in 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 in, in times of of, of uh, cruelty and mass murder. it's 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 important, but it's also uh, important not to like put too much emphasis on it because I, I think it 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 also hasn't a tendency maybe to 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 uh, uh, to put too much of a positive light on something which is like uh, basically a, a very sinister tale about like what humans can do to each other.
0: What new insights does your research present? regarding Matsui Iwane?
2: Well, he, he's a really interesting uh, person. He was the uh, commander, the, the top uh, field commander on the Japanese side uh, in Shanghai and also later in the Battle of, of Nanjing. So being the top guy, uh, you could say that he was ultimately also the person responsible for all the uh, atrocities taking place uh, at the hands of, of, of the Japanese uh, soldiers. So in, in that respect, it's... It's, it's very, very easy to uh, paint him as, as this, you know, through and through villain. But at the, at the same time, what makes him interesting uh, is that there were more facets to his personality. Before he uh, arrived in China in 1937, having recently been appointed head of the uh, Japanese forces there, um, he had mostly made a name for himself in Japan as, uh, as a proponent of the uh, Pan-Asian cause this whole idea that uh, the Asian people should um, throw off the yoke of um, Western imperialism, kick out the European imperialists, and, and govern themselves. And um, so, so he, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't led by this um, racist ideology that 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 uh, some uh, Japanese official uh, officers were obsessed by. He was, uh, he was. He was a Japanese first, of course, but he was Asian second. And um, in, uh, in that capacity, he wasn't really anti Chinese at all. Um, actually, he, he had pinned uh, some hopes on, on Chiang Kai shek in, in the past as, as, so as a political figure who could uh, help in this uh, larger endeavor of, of uh, pushing out the, the Western imperialists from Asia. Uh, the thing is that uh, Ivano uh, Matsui was uh, later on uh, severely disappointed by, by Chiang Kai-shek because uh, Chiang Kai-shek decided in late 1936 to ally himself with the communists to um, to fight against the Japanese. Um, Matsui Ivano saw that as, as kind of like a betrayal uh, against the Japanese, which probably served to reinforce the... Um, the um, the severity with which he uh, waged the campaign against the Chinese.
0: Can you elaborate on Bai Changxi's role in the events that you chronicle?
2: Yeah, he was uh, one of the um, major, uh, uh, major. Uh, uh, he was one of the senior officers in, in, in on, on Chiang Kai-shek's staff. But uh, he's interesting uh, in, in several different ways. Uh, one thing that uh, is immediately uh, interesting is the fact that he was actually a uh, Muslim uh, so, and representative of uh, China's uh, Muslim uh, minority and also uh, representative of the fact that the uh, Chinese Muslims sometimes uh, re- reached fairly high ranks in, in, in Chinese society. But that's kind of like maybe an aside. Um, what's interesting uh, was that he was also representative of um, some of the uh, cliques uh, that um, uh, within the uh, Chinese officer corps that Chiang Kai-shek did not have complete control over um, he managed to Chiang Kai-shek managed to uh, get Bai Chongxi and some of the other generals to uh, unite behind him in the war against uh, Japan uh, in 1937. But it, it was like a constant battle to um, to um, to to satisfy uh, localized interest uh, represented by these generals at the same time as as they they formed uh, a unified front against the Japanese. So it, it was like this constant tension that Chiang Kai-shek was. Uh, facing throughout the war uh, beginning in 1937 and, and also before that and 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 after um, this tension uh, between uh, between uh, rallying the nation and and at the same time uh, uh, making making the uh, the local power holders happy so it was really hard for 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 kai shek to really be an effectual leader which is one of the reason why he reasons why he had this kind of uh, somewhat mixed legacy that caused him to be painted as as an ineffectual leader for most of the post-war period.
0: Can you comment on the use of poison gas by the Japanese?
2: Yeah, uh, it's uh, it's it's a bit of a complex issue uh, because uh, so much his, his historiography uh, and history writing in in China is also tied up with the official propaganda. So sometimes it's hard to to tell where propaganda stops and historical fact begins. Uh, But it seems like based on on the evidence that had been been brought forward by the Chinese, both during the war and and by Chinese historians after the war, it seems to be pretty clear that the the Japanese were carrying out uh, chemical warfare on a fairly large scale in in China during most of the war years. And also, by the way, uh, uh, bacteriological, like. Biological warfare as well. Uh, so all of these things were that were actually banned by by the Europeans. Uh, the, the, the Japanese just, you know, did on a fairly large scale in, in in China.
0: You often allude to analogies from European military history applied to the conflict, such as Verdun. Stalingrad, etc. For example, there's a chapter in your book called Verdun of the East, and the very subtitle of your book is Stalingrad on the Yangtze. What are the strengths and weaknesses of these analogies when thinking about the Second Sino Japanese War?
2: Well, the thing is, uh... The, the the fact that the, the, this is a, a part of history that is uh, almost unknown to, to very to, to many Western readers, so I think it's necessary to make some kind of like um, um, allusions of this uh, of this kind to to kind of like give a rough idea about what what this is about. You know, as I mentioned, uh, Stalingrad on the Yangtze was uh, a name that I picked for the book simply to just um, to 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 to. to Bring across this whole idea about like a major urban battle uh, taking place between two uh, modern armies, and it shouldn't really be taken very much further than that. Uh, it's not like you know I, I, I don't um, I don't claim that there's any kind of like one-to-one uh, similarity between the, the the two battles. It's it's simply uh, uh, it's, it's it's a way of getting getting people's attention and uh, get, getting them to understand like just just how big this this event was. Uh, regarding the other men- uh, example that you mentioned about Bantang on of the East, this is actually not my invention. Uh, this was something that uh, foreign correspondents uh, used themselves when reporting about the Battle of Shanghai uh, back to their the readers in Europe and and uh, North America at the time, um, which goes to show that the, the the prism through which they looked at at, at the war uh, in China at the at the time was. Uh, it was um, the prism of World War One? I. I mean, they they used their experiences of World War One to try and make sense of what they were seeing in in China. We we see um, uh, the, the Battle of Shanghai, 1937, as as pre-war history, like pre Second World War. But of course, the um, the people at the time didn't know that there was a Second World War coming up. I mean, maybe they could sense it, but I mean, it wasn't like historical fact to them the way it is for us. So to them, it was much more natural to look at, um, at uh, the Battle of Shanghai as, as uh, kind of like an echo of, of the war that had taken place two decades earlier in, in primarily uh, Europe. So, so this, uh, for example, the, the stalemate that um, evolved uh, north of Shanghai in the months, um, in the, in the fall months of 1937, uh, was very similar to what had been uh, experienced in, in Western Europe in, uh, from 1914 to 1918 with like defensive weaponry being more effective than uh, assault weaponry uh, with artillery playing a, a big role you know, with, with front lines moving um, very little if at all at, at the cost of uh, enormous um, uh, um, like sacrifices in, in life on, on both sides so so to to the contemporaries it was simply a way of, of making sense and 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 getting the message across to, um, to 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 the readership, we also have to remember that both the journalists who um, wrote about the war in Shanghai and the uh, audience back home that read about it were people who very often had uh, a direct first-hand experience of, of World War One. So to so them, it was natural to make this kind of comparison.
0: What roles did the Japanese? Navy and Air Force play in the conflict.
2: Well, the uh, the Japanese um, Navy anchored uh, off Shanghai was a floating artillery that uh, kind of like was close carried uh, uh, out close combat uh, support for for Japanese soldiers uh, inside the city, and and this was a role that pretty much uh, continued uh, throughout the campaign. Uh, right on until November 1937, when the the Chinese were were pushed out of Shanghai. Uh, also, the uh, the the Japanese Air Force uh, played a, a growing role in in, in the battle. Initially, uh, of course, it was limited uh, because of the uh, lack of uh, available uh, airfields. But uh, gradually, as um, as the Japanese uh, expanded the the area under the control in the Shanghai Shanghai region, and and also as uh, aircraft carriers were sailed in from Japan, um, the the Japanese Air Force became a a, a growing and a more uh, decisive factor in in the battle, and also was kind of like a harbinger of what was to come in, in World War II, where especially air power was going to be much, much more significant than it had been in in the previous conflict from 1914 to 1918. So people who were astute and were keeping an eye on on, uh, the development of of weapon technology at the time, they they might have gotten an inkling of what was in store just a few years down the road with uh, the outbreak of of World War II.
0: Can you describe the different manifestations of female suffering in the Second Sino-Japanese War?
2: Yeah, uh, it's... I think that maybe there are not very many aspects. Uh, I think it's it's more the, the same thing that, that happened with um, with the awful regularity every time the Japanese had taken over a, a, a new city. I mean the the mass rape of the female population, um, which uh, I think was was uh, a combination of you know. Uh, Japanese uh, soldiers having been in the field for a long time without uh, female company, combined with a very lax discipline in the Japanese army, when it comes to this particular aspect, uh, generally speaking, there wasn't there was very little done by the uh, Japanese officers that uh, in in terms of reining in the um, uh, the uh, the uh, private soldiers uh, w- when they went uh, on on uh, uh, like. Um, on, on these, uh, when they went like searching for for, for, for local local women, um, which to some extent like backfired on, on the Japanese later on, because I mean, if, if there's like no discipline uh, when when you don't tell the soldiers to behave uh, towards the civilian population, you know, you, you, you get an undisciplined army that also may not um, behave uh, optimally in, in, in battle. So, uh, once we moved beyond um, the, the, the rape of Nanjing uh, in, in late 1937 and early 1938 with a massive rape of, of uh, Chinese women, uh, th- there were some uh, s- systematic efforts by the Japanese army to try and, 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 um, and, and uh, rein in the, uh, the behavior of, of the private soldiers.
0: Can you tell us about the history of military technology employed in the conflict?
2: Yeah, I think I think uh, yeah the the most important thing is is uh, this um, idea of of how uh, air power and and uh, more modern weaponry uh, turned out to be decisive in in the Battle of of of, uh, of Shanghai. I mean it, it wasn't like the, um, the, the the raw numbers that that really counted it was like who had the better technology and, and also the better training. And those were the Japanese, even, even though they were fewer than the Chinese throughout the battle, they, they still prevailed, largely because of, of, of better better weaponry and, and better better training.
0: Who was Henry Johan Diederik de Fremery? Why is he noteworthy?
2: Well, he's uh, interesting because he was a, uh, a Dutch officer uh, seconded to the um, Chinese army as uh, an observer. Um, he was sent from the uh, Dutch colony of um, uh, East India, uh, currently Indonesia, and uh, officially with the task of of, uh, of just, just observing and uh, maybe giving give, give scattered advice to the Chinese. But in fact, he was there as, as a spy uh, sent by the Dutch colonial government in Southeast Asia. Th- they wanted to see A, um, what China was up to, and B, what uh, modern, uh, modern, modern, modern uh, military technology could do in the battlefield, and uh, his uh, reports sent back to the uh, Dutch colonial administration in in uh, East India is the East in the East Indies is is pretty interesting reading, uh, especially his uh, interest in, uh, in, um, in 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 Japanese uh, landing craft uh, used uh, to. Uh, uh, Disembark soldiers uh, n- near Shanghai and and also to 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 take soldiers across uh, major uh, rivers in the Shanghai area. Uh, it, it seems that he he sensed that this was uh, a technology that was going to be uh, of uh, some importance in 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 the coming years and and of course he was right about that. I mean, landing craft were uh, vital, really essential for 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 the war, uh, not just like D-Day but also um, in the battles of the various islands in the Pacific in the, in the 1940s.
0: Can you describe Japanese soldiers' discipline during the conflict?
2: Well, it's it's interesting because uh, the Japanese kind of had the um, reputation of being the, the Prussians of, of the East, you know, people uh, soldiers uh, who were under immense discipline and uh, iron discipline and uh, where the slightest infraction was uh, severely punished by, by the officers. Uh, th- that was the um, that was the reputation that the Japanese had based on uh, their conduct uh, both in the war against Russia in 1904-1905 and in, in the war against uh, the Germans in uh, 1914 in in China. Uh, so people really expected them to behave similarly in the war uh, in China. Uh, the, the fact that they did not and that they um, Committed these uh, atrocities uh, in, in in several conquered cities, uh, Shanghai and, and later Nanjing was was really a, a shock to to many uh, observers, especially Westerners, but also some Chinese who who thought that um, that the arrival of the Japanese would, would mean order, maybe a stern stern order, but at least some kind of order. And instead, what they got was chaos. So. Uh, it, 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 it turned out that, that this whole idea of, of uh, the Japanese as being immensely disciplined was uh, uh, somehow, uh, to some extent, an illusion. Uh, it's a little bit unclear, perhaps, why it turned out to be like that. Uh, I think one of the reasons was that uh, uh, very soon after the war in China started in 1937, uh, Japan had to draw on its uh, reserves. Uh, people who had, hadn't been in the army for several years... Um, people who were sometimes like relatively uh, old, like you know mid mid thirties, who were suddenly like pulled back from civilian life into into uniform, and uh, simply had not got used to the um, to the discipline of the army, and and uh, behaved uh, um, very much uh, like civilians in in in, uh, in the battlefield, like panicking, uh, suddenly carrying out random acts of violence against uh, civilians, maybe under the
0: what is your book's contribution to the history and historiography of World War II?
2: Well, I think the most important thing is uh, my book, along with other books that have been published uh, recently, I would say over the past decade or so, um, is that we uh, we try to open up a new field for World War II history. I would say maybe the last unexplored um, area of World War II history as I mentioned earlier, World War II has been exhaustively researched and written about um, when it comes to Europe, when it comes to um, the war in, in the Pacific, when it comes to the war at sea, the war in the air, the occupied territories in, in Europe and Asia. The only thing that really still needs um, the historian's uh, gaze is uh, China in World War II. That, that's really a major white spot. And... I think my contribution, but not my book alone, but other books that have also been published uh, over the past decade or so, are trying to like gradually fill in this blank. But there's a lot more that needs to be done.
0: As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about the subsequent research you've worked on since completing this book?
2: Well, I've um, continued uh, uh, researching uh, World War II in uh, uh, in, in, in China, I, I published a book uh, called uh, Nanjing 1937, which is about the, uh, mostly about the military aspect of, of the Battle of Nanjing, which came right after uh, the Battle of Shanghai in 1937. Then I've uh, published uh, uh, three books about the, the war in the Asia-Pacific more, more generally, uh, but with a, with a heavy emphasis on what took place in China. To, tr- to try and like reflect you know the uh, the contribution of, of China to 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 uh, events in World War II and then uh, more more most recently I've uh, published or I'm actually writing a book right now finishing a book about Greenland in uh, World War II uh, this is kind of like a um, you could say it's a kind of like a departure from what I've been writing so far since it's like you know the complete other side of the world, but it's uh, it's again, reflective of my great interest in World War II, or, and also the fact that I have a personal history uh, when it comes to Greenland, uh, having lived there for, for a few years as a boy.
0: Sounds phenomenal and absolutely morally important. Thank you. As we end today, I'd like to let you know how thankful, appreciative, and grateful I feel for everything you shared during the course of this conversation. I can hardly thank you enough for your wisdom, erudition, eloquence, and generosity in everything you bequeathed during the course of this dialogue.
2: Well, I I thank you very much for giving me this opportunity to to talk about uh, my favorite subject.
0: Thank you. I'm so grateful and I absolutely appreciate how magnanimous you have been with your time and your attention.
2: Well, it's, it's been an honor to participate.
0: Thank you. As we end today's dialogue, I'm your host on the New Books in History podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today I've been in dialogue with Peter Harmson. We have been discussing his recently published book, Shanghai 1937, Stalingrad on the Yangtze, published in Philadelphia and Oxford by Casemate Publishers 2013. Dr. Harmsen has a PhD in China studies. He is a journalist for the Danish publication, Weekendavisen, Wiesen, with a focus on East Asia. He is the author of eight books on historical themes. Thank you with the full essence of my being.